It's been an interesting week in Australia. The first thing that caught my attention at the start of the week was a petition that was encouraging Christians to sign up. I don't know if you'd heard the news, but Apple, in their latest update on their iPhone and devices, uh, in the emoji section, is or has, inclu- has included an image, an emoji, of a pregnant man. And so Christians are raising concerns about that. That was the first thing that came across or caught my attention. We moved from there to the next thing that really started to gain traction around about Tuesday was the whole saga of the City Point Christian Church over in Brisbane. If you haven't heard about that, just briefly, the leaders of the City Point Church had made a decision. They were wanting parents who were enrolling their children in this Christian college to sign a contract that said if your child enters the school as a male or a female, then they have to remain that. And so it's, it's obviously trying to speak into the whole gender debate. And that has created a whole bunch of discussion around the country. And the uh, statements and the accusations on both sides have been flying across, backwards and forwards, thick and fast, have been the subject of much debate. So that was Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday, my attention was drawn to uh, by one of the folks in our congregation. To uh, I don't know if you've heard of the ABC Drive program, but Jeff Hutchinson runs that program, and every fortnight he has two ministers on, the same two ministers. They've been coming on for a few years now. They're called the Holy Heretics. And the object of the discussion is to discuss spiritual matters and things that are pertinent. And I listened to this because uh, one of the folks in our congregation, they had some concerns, and rightly so, about the way the discussion was going. But just to give you an idea of the discussion, the two ministers were discussing whether or not octopuses have a saviour. Now, before the grammarians jump to it and say it's octopi, it's actually octopuses. I checked this out. So if you want to correct me later on, you better come armed with a dictionary. And so my concern about that debate in the midst of, of discussing, apparently, spiritual matters, to me, it's trivialising the Christian faith. It just trivialises. It brings important issues down to a level. I'm all for being able to speak to people in our community in a way and a language that they understand. But I get concerned when we take the great matters of faith and we trivialise it. So that was Wednesday. It's been a good week so far. We then uh, wake up to the news yesterday morning that our Christian Prime Minister has been accused by a member of his own government, uh, albeit a year ago, that he's a liar and a hypocrite and I don't trust him. Now, we know there are apologies that are all made, but, but this is concerning because, again, we're talking about a Christian. This morning, just this morning, I learned that the Christian Democratic Party in New South Wales has imploded. It's been imploding for the last few years and there's this almighty battle going on between the powers that run the Christian Democratic Party and they're in court, imploding. And then thrown into all of that, for me as a pastor, is the the constant, and what I'm finding this, and this is not a complaint, this is just the realities of what it means for us living as Christians in the days in which we are and what it means as a Christian leader. But there are the constant challenges of discussing with people. There are people who are pro the vaccine. There are people who do not support the vaccine. And in between, you've got a group of people who are just confused about the whole thing. And so pastorally trying to minister into that situation and speak into it. And of course, we know the Christian voice is out there expressing itself in all sorts of different ways on that issue. Here's my point. 
The Christian faith has been pushed to the margins of our society, exiled, if you like, and we're told in no uncertain terms, that we don't want to hear your voice on any issues. Now, do not hear what I'm saying, and I'm being very uh, truthful here this morning. I'm not making a comment one way or the other on any of those issues publicly here this morning. Happy to talk to you about them, but I'm not, make, I'm not here this morning to make uh, a public uh, defence or criticism or otherwise. What I'm here to talk about this morning is for us to recognise the fact that the Christian voice is on the margins or in exile on our society... And in fact, the Christian voice is told in no uh, uncertain terms, your voice is no longer welcome in the community. That's pretty clear. And yet, this week, the Christian voice has been front and centre. And the point that I want to make to you is this, that with all of this stuff going on and all of this stuff that's related to Christianity and with our faith being on the margins or exiled out of the community in the public discourse, you need to understand this, that the world is still watching us. And the world is watching us very carefully. And we need to take note of that. We might be on the margins. We might be exiled. Our voice may no longer be appreciated or wanted in our community. But you need to understand this, folks, that the world is watching us. And they're watching very carefully. And they're watching to see how we react and how we respond. And that's the message this morning. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We commence this series of temporary residents living in difficult days. Peter writes to a community that is on the margins of the empire. Peter writes to a community where the Christian voice is not welcome. Peter writes to a community to encourage them to recognise that this is just a temporary stopping off point. Our real home is in heaven, but in the meantime, this is how you should live. This is what it means, says Peter, to live as a group of people who have been exiled from the community, whose voice is not welcome. And Peter's encouragement and Peter's exhortation may surprise you. How do we live in that kind of community? How do we live in that society? Well, let's talk to a mo- for a moment about a society or a church that Peter writes to that is living on the margins. The first thing that Peter does is he uh, emphasises and draws their attention to the fact that they are temporary residents. Notice what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens... That's the way it's translated in my Bible. It's a pretty literal translation, but the word is translated in all sorts of different ways. It can be translated in some Bibles as exiles. Uh, Some Bibles have it translated as strangers in the world or as foreigners. Well, here's the thing. The word means to live in a strange place away from your usual group of people that you live with. So foreigners is a good translation, that idea that you're living in a different culture amongst a different group of people, a different nationality. And it emphasises the fact that you are an alien. But here's the other thing, and this is the one that I like. The word also emphasises that you are a temporary resident. This is not your permanent lodging. This is not the final destination. And so Peter writes to the church who he considers to be temporary residents. Where you are living now, he lists it off. He's writing to the Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He writes to them and says, you are temporary residents. This is not your real home. This is not the final destination. It's a temporary stopping off point. 
But Peter also writes not just to temporary residents, but he writes to a church that has been pushed to the margins. We're dealing with a church that has been pushed out to the margins of the empire of Rome. Notice what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. The church has been scattered. The the Greek word is diaspora. This word diaspora is a word that was used often to describe the Jews who had been dispersed throughout the nations. So it was a technical term that would describe Jewish people who had left their homeland in Israel and moved out to various other nations. They were called the diaspora. They were dispersed among the nations. But it's not just to Jews that Peter is writing. He's writing to Christians. And in this area of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, you have not just Jews, but you have pagans. And in this area, as he writes to the church, he writes to Jews and to pagans, Gentiles, who've been converted and come to faith in Jesus and now form the church. And he writes to them and he says, your temporary residence. It's not your final destination. You've been pushed to the margins of the empire. You're not right in the thick of things, but you're out there on the margins. Let me show you what I mean. Have a look at this map. Uh, This is the map of the Roman Empire. This is the Roman Empire at its height in 117 AD. The uh, year or era that we're living in at this point with 1 Peter is 63-64 AD. But this is the area that he's talking about over here. Uh, These are the the, uh, places he talks about, Cappadocia and Asia and Galatia. Uh, He talks about Bithynia and Pontus. Uh, This is known as the area of Asia Minor and these districts are up here. Over here you can see here is Rome. So we've got these people out on the margins of the empire and they're living in this northern area. If you want a modern day equivalent, we're dealing here with the area of Turkey. This is where he is writing to. These are the Christians that he wants to encourage. This is the group of Christians who've been scattered and who are living out on the margins of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire of the day. And this is what he says to them. We've mentioned it already. He writes to them and he says, you are temporary residents and you are scattered. Now, why does he call them temporary residents? Why does he remind them of that? What is he getting at? Is he saying, okay, you are living in what we would call Turkey and you're aliens, uh, you need to get a permanent residency pass so that you can live there for the rest of your life? Is that why he calls them temporary residents? No. You see, Peter has a much bigger picture in mind. Yes, he's reminding them of the fact that they've been pushed out to the margins of the empire, but this is what he wants them to understand. And this is the translation that I want to use. This word alien or temporary resident, the best way of translating it is he is writing to them and he calls them pilgrims. I'm writing to the pilgrims in Pontus and Galatia and Asia and Bithynia and Cappadocia. What is he saying? He's reminding them, this earth is not your home. You are temporary residents. Yes, you've been pushed out to the margins of the empire. Yes, you are going to enter into a period of time where you are going to suffer for your faith. Your voice is not wanting to be heard. But I write to you, says Peter, and I write to you as pilgrims. Because the fact is, church, he says, you're on a pilgrimage. And Turkey, or wherever it is you find yourself at this point in time, is not your final stopping point. This 
is just a passing through station. Your final residency is in heaven. That's the hope that Peter sows in their heart. Understand that in the book of 1 Peter, as we unpack this over the next several weeks, that one of the great themes that comes out is hope. And so Peter writes to a church that needs hope, a church that needs encouragement. And he says to them, he writes to them and he says, you're pilgrims and you're on a journey. And this world is not your final destination. Spells it out loud and clear. So in verse 1, we could translate it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims who've been scattered. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 11. The word occurs again. He says, Beloved, I urge you as pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. What is Peter saying? You're on a journey. You're living in a hostile world. But that's not the end of the story. You are pilgrims. But make sure, says Peter, as you make your pilgrimage through this world, that you leave a mark for Jesus and you live as Jesus would have you live. That you follow Jesus. That you make your mark. This letter, I said a few minutes ago, was written in 63-64 AD. What is the significance of it? Well, in 62 AD, a man by the name of James the Just, you know James, he wrote the epistle that occurs immediately before 1 Peter, the book of James. James the Just, the brother of Jesus, the head of the Jerusalem church. In 62 AD, he was called James the Just because he was known as an upright man in the Jerusalem community. He was a godly man and he pointed people to Jesus. But in 62 AD, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, took James the Just to the top of the temple in Jerusalem and threw him down to the street below. The fall did not kill him, so they beat him to death with a club. It caused outrage in the community. But it also had the effect of some Christians leaving Jerusalem and moving into the outer regions of the empire. And so Peter writes in 63-64 AD against that backdrop. And so he writes to some churches in this area that we call today Turkey and he writes to them and understands that yes, there are pagans and Jews who've come to faith but there are those who've come from Jerusalem as well who have sought to escape the persecution and he writes to them and he says, you're pilgrims, you're temporary residents. This is not your final destination. But here's how I want you to live in this world that is hostile to you. And it's very pastoral. It's a very pastoral letter. I want you to hear the heart of Peter speaking to you through this series. I want you to hear Peter's heart this morning. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. He says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. In other words, live in fear of God. And if you want to paraphrase it, Peter is saying there, live your life out in the fear of God during your pilgrimage here on earth. That's another legitimate way of translating it. This is how you are to live. And so into this mix of pilgrims in a hostile world, as he talks to a church that is on the margins, as he talks to a church that has been rejected, whose voice is not wanted, what does he say to them? I'll tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, get a rally together and march on the uh, governor's palace or march into Rome and demand your rights. I told you this book is going to be challenging. This is going to challenge us at the core of our being for those of us who have been raised in the Western world as Christians who think we've got rights in this society. This book will challenge you. It's challenging me. 
Peter does not say, march on the governor's palace. This is what he does say. He says, firstly, remember your final destination. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. You will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Remember your ultimate destination, says Peter. And then he says, live lives that show you belong to God. Look at verse 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Show that you live a life that is worthy, that says you belong to God, that it sets you apart from the community. And then he says, when you're treated unjustly, when you feel that your rights have been trampled on, do you know what Peter says? Endure it. Wow, that's something we're not used to hearing in the Western church, isn't it? Look at chapter 2, verse 20. What credit is there, says Peter, if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, put it up on Facebook. That's not what he says. He says, if you suffer for doing the right thing, endure it. How do we live, says Peter? Remember your ultimate destination. Live lives that show you belong to God and endure unjust suffering. When your rights are trampled on. I tell you again, this letter, if you read it carefully, and if you stick with this series, it will challenge you to the core of your being as a Christian in terms of how you live in difficult days. Now, I mentioned hope. We looked at that in verse 4. Peter gives his readers and he gives us hope by pointing out that Christians are people belonging to another kingdom, to a greater kingdom. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says that Christians are known by God. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, sorry, <laughs> that was 2 Peter, the flipped over to chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens. I want you to notice this. Paraphrasing it, Peter says, I am writing as an apostle of Jesus to the chosen pilgrims of the dispersion. But here's the important thing. In the Greek text, when you read it, the first words that occur are the chosen. So it reads in this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen who reside as pilgrims and are scattered throughout this particular region. The word chosen occurs first. Now, if you look carefully in your Bibles, in my Bible, the word chosen occurs at the end of verse 1. What's the significance of having it in the original text at the beginning? I'll tell you what the significance is, because it emphasizes the choice of God of his people. And it's a choice that is always based on love. God does not, when he chooses his people, make an arbitrary choice. God chooses out of love. His choice of us is motivated by his deep love for us. That comes all the way through the Old Testament and through the choice of Israel. And that applies to us as his children. In his choosing of us, he chooses us in love. Now, before you get a little unsettled about that, because what Peter's talking about here is the Trinity is involved in salvation. Before you get a little unsettled about the fact that God picks people, understand this, that in God's choice of you, he never overrides your personal responsibility or your need to choose Christ as Lord and Saviour. You, you don't find that in the Bible. We are still charged with the responsibility of choosing for Jesus, of accepting responsibility for our sin and putting our faith and trust in Jesus. So God's choice, however you want to define that, does not override personal responsibility and personal choice. 
But I said the Trinity is involved. So God the Father chooses us in love, but notice how this is brought about. It's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Look at verse 2. Here's the work of the Holy Spirit in the role of salvation. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our need of a saviour. The fact that our sin has separated us from God. The Holy Spirit then leads us to a place of faith, of putting our trust in Jesus as Lord and saviour. And then when he's finished doing that, he sanctifies us. And the word sanctify simply means to set a person apart. It means to separate them from their sin. In other words, By the power of the Spirit's work in your life, you are lifted out of that life of sin and you're set apart for God. That's what sanctification means. And we see it's an ongoing uh, application. It doesn't mean that you're holy and pure and righteous and will never sin again. Yes, you are all those things, but it doesn't mean you won't have your problems. It doesn't mean that you're instantly perfect. Because what does it say? That the Holy Spirit has sanctified you that you may obey Jesus Christ. That's the ongoing work of holiness. It's the ongoing work of growing into the image of Jesus. And it's all brought about, and here's the final member of the Trinity. Second person of the Trinity, but mentioned, in, as mentioned third here in this text. That you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Two great things about this. You see, Peter wants them to know that you are known by God. Two great things about this sprinkling. In the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice was for the cleansing of sin. So the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus on us cleanses us, cleanses our conscience, cleanses us completely from our sin. But there's another marvellous thing about the sprinkling in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the blood of the sacrifice was also taken and sprinkled on the the priests and the high priests and on their garments. For what purpose? to set them apart as God's priests, as a royal priesthood. Do you know that when you were sprinkled in the blood of Jesus, not only were you cleansed from sin, but you were made one of his priests? Do you know that? You only have to go across to chapter 2 and to verse 9, where Peter says, writing to the Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Here's the second thing that he says as he talks about the fact that Christians are belonging to a greater kingdom. He says this, you are blessed by God. We've looked at some of that blessing, but notice the way in which he rounds it off. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. May it be yours in abundance. May it multiply. May you know more of the grace of God. May you know more of the peace of God in your life. May it be yours in its fullest measure. May it increase. May it multiply. Now, let me just say this before we move on. You might be sitting there and you might be a little bit uncomfortable about God chose me. Don't I have any say in the matter? You might be sitting there and saying, what if God didn't choose me to be one of his? I'm going to use the words of an old preacher who believed in the divine choice of God of his people, but also said this, how do you know whether or not you're one of God's chosen ones? Come to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him. And what will you discover? He's never turned anyone away. If you'd like to talk more about that this morning, I'd love to talk with you after the service about what it is to know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Let's come back to the motivation of this letter. 
What is it that Peter is getting at? What is the real motivation behind this letter? Turn to chapter 5, verse 13. Notice what Peter says as he wraps up the letter. Now, we'll come to this in time, but I just want to draw your attention to it. As he writes and he closes off the letter, he says, she who is in Babylon, he's talking about the church, and he's talking about the church who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. He's not in literal Babylon. He's in Rome. Babylon was a code word used by the early Christians to describe Rome. It was a fitting way of describing the Roman or the capital of the Roman Empire. So Peter writes from Rome and you will see references to the emperor or to the king in the letter of Peter. So he's writing from Rome, 63-64 AD. Who is the emperor? Well, it's a guy by the name of Nero. You may have heard of Nero. The legend is that he allegedly played the fiddle while Rome burned. The letter is written in 63-64 AD. Nero is the emperor. In July of 64 AD, the fire will ravage Rome. Interestingly, as large parts of Rome are burned to the ground, the estates of Nero remain untouched. So the populace begin to suspect that Nero did this deliberately. And how is it that none of his estates were burned? And so the population begins to turn against Nero. They don't like this emperor. They have suspicions about him. They have thoughts that somehow he's up to something. And so Nero needs a scapegoat. He needs someone to blame. Guess who he blames? The Christians. And in time, this intense persecution that comes from Nero, over the years, as persecution against Christians increases, Christians will be said, they'll have, said th- have things said to them about like this. The Christians are antisocial, the Romans will say. The Christians are cannibals, they will say because they eat the body and the blood of their Lord. The Christians are incestuous because they say that they love their brother and they love their sister. All sorts of rumours begin to circulate about the Christians over time. The Christians are atheists because they don't believe in the gods. And in his own persecution, Nero will do this to the Christians. He will take the Christians and he will set fire to them as they are tied to stakes and use them as torchlights during his banquets to light up the night. That's what he will do to God's people. Or he will take some of them and he will throw them to the wild animals to be torn apart for public entertainment. It's estimated that thousands of Christians die under the Neronian persecution. And that's the backdrop. This is the backdrop against which Peter writes in 63-64 AD to a church that is on the margins. Because Peter can see what's coming. In the Neronian persecution, the Apostle Paul is beheaded. Within 18 months to two years of writing this letter, Peter will be crucified upside down, tradition tells us. That's where this man is headed. And so he writes to Christians on the margins against this backdrop of mounting persecution in Babylon, in Rome. And he says to the church, this is how I want you to live. This is what Jesus is asking us to do. So folks, here I am this morning, plunging into this series in 1 Peter, because I am convinced God wants us to look at this. Absolutely convinced. Been praying through this, thinking about it for a while. And given the week we've just had, it confirmed to me, this is the right time for us to look at this letter. And it is going to challenge you to the core of your being. 
So during this series, I want to talk with you as your pastor about what it means to be living as exiles. Let's just talk about that as we wrap things up. Here's where it gets practical. I already said at the outset of the message that the Christian voice has been pushed to the margins of our society. We're out on the margins of the empire. People don't want to hear us. Our input is not welcome. It's not wanted. I want to say to you, if you struggle with that, and I struggle with it, but I want to say to you this, what did you expect? Jesus never told us that our message would be welcome in this world. So if we're going to be living as exiles, if we're going to be living, I thought about this, pilgrims would have been much better. So cross out exiles and put pilgrims. If we're going to be living as pilgrims, what does that mean for us as God's people? It means first and foremostly that we're going to be committed to living counterculturally. Have a look at 1 Peter verses 13 to 16. Look at what he says. Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Let me say this. Holiness is not legalism. It's not about do's and about don'ts. It's about living in the fear of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you into the image of Jesus. And it's about not buying into the world's value system or the world's belief. It's about believing and living differently. It's living counterculturally. Folks, this world, to quote an old, old Christian song that was popular when I was a young person. Now I'm just a slightly older person. The song went like this, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. We live as pilgrims in this world. God has placed us here, but in the words of the writer of Hebrews, he talked about the pilgrims who've gone beyond before us. In Hebrews 11, he said this, all of them died in faith without receiving the promises. But he says, They knew that God held out for them a greater country, a greater promise, an eternal home. And he said this, he said they desire a better country, these pilgrims, and it's the same for us. It's a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Their eyes were on the prize, to quote another friend of mine. This world is not our home, we're just passing through. Living as exiles, living as pilgrims, is a call to live humbly. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter. Do you know that the word suffer occurs 11 times in this book? The, The word suffer occurs 40 times in the New Testament, but the most it occurs is in the book of Peter, 1 Peter, 11 times. Peter has a lot to say about suffering, and this is what he says in the light of suffering. He says, live with humility. Don't demand your rights, but live with humility. Why? Because the world is watching how you will respond. The world is watching how you will live. There was a little bit of a minor uproar this week because a Catholic mass was interrupted on Thursday evening by the police who came in to check to make sure the parishioners were wearing their masks. And some people were, or the inference of one of the article I read was that we're living in a police state and, you know, it's getting like communism and all this sort of stuff. Here's the point, though, and this is the point that I think some people missed. The reason why the police went into that church is because they were given a tip-off 
by people in the community. Now, you might not like that. I don't like that. But, folks, it bears out my point. The world is watching us. And if we're going to stand up and just demand our rights and say, I'll do what I want to do, and you're not going to tell me whether I can wear a mask or not, folks, hear this. The world is watching us. And they're watching how we respond. They might not like your voice. They might not welcome you. They might have you out there on the margins. But I tell you this, they're watching And Peter is writing to a church and he's saying to them, the world is watching you and they're going to see how you bear up under suffering. Show them a different way. Show them Jesus because you know the path that Jesus walked. It's a call to live prayerfully. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. To live as a pilgrim is to live prayerfully. As a leadership, we have had some two discussions about how we can grow in our prayer life personally and as a church this year. You're going to be hearing more about that in the weeks to come. But here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit. What? For the purpose of prayer. I stand before you this morning as your pastor and I'm telling you this, I need your prayer. Because we are living in challenging times and it is a difficult, challenging time for leaders. I don't say that to complain. I'm saying I need your wisdom because we're on a fine edge. At this point, our community has not asked us to deny Jesus, but it's a fine line, isn't it? And we need wisdom. I need wisdom in terms of decisions and counsel that I have to give. And so I covet your prayers. I mean that. But folks, we've got to understand it's a fine line. And it requires the wisdom, the prayerful input of God and his word for us to know when it's right to make a stand for something and when it's to sit back. If they start asking us to deny Jesus, it's a whole different thing. But it requires wisdom to know the difference. Because we can end up fighting so many battles that are unnecessary and harm our witness for Jesus. And it's a call, living as a pilgrim, to live courageously. Look at chapter 5. Verses 6 and 10. We'll get into all of this at a later stage. This is what I want to remind you of. Verse 9. Resist him, the devil. Verse 8 says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And while you have, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. So having just said what I said about living prayerfully and we live on a fine line, I'm telling you this need to live courageously because there will be times and the times are coming. Peter wrote to a church and he could see what was going to happen. The persecution starting in Rome, he could see where it's spreading. And folks, my concern as a pastor is I can see where we're going in our community, where we're headed. And so I'm saying to you that at some point we're going to be called to have to live courageously. And we're going to be called upon to stand up and to speak for Jesus in a world that increasingly, well, it's just pushed us out to the margins. So hear my heart this morning. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm not here to pick a fight. But I'm going to tell you this much, that we who have lived in the Western world and the Western church and in a Western democracy, we become used to having rights. And those rights have been increasingly eroded, have they not? They certainly have. But we have to understand this, and this is what I want you to hear as your pastor this morning. What did you expect? Jesus did not say, pick up your TV and comfy chair and come follow me. He said, take up your cross. 
It's a complete renunciation of the life that you lived. Take up your cross and follow me. The Christian has no rights. But we have a responsibility to follow our Lord and Saviour. And we have to get used to the fact that we've been pushed in the margins and we've got to discover how to live for Jesus in that kind of world in these difficult days. The year I turned 13, I made my first faltering commitment to Jesus. When I turned 17, I made a deeper commitment at a camp, a fuller commitment, one that was based on obeying Christ, a challenge that he put to my heart about obedience. A couple of years later, I made another commitment to Jesus and that was to follow him and his will into the ministry to become a pastor. And that came at a cost as well. And over the years, I've been at various stages called to make certain commitments to Jesus. So with what I'm about to say, this is not a new commitment, but it's a renewed commitment. And it's in the words of an old song that we're going to sing to close this morning. The words go like this. It's, It's sung by Christians who, some of them were martyred. It's a traditional song. And the song goes like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So that's my commitment this morning. I'm saying to you, as your pastor, it's not a new commitment, but it's a renewed commitment. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. What's your commitment this morning? We're going to sing this song this morning. Folks, sing it like you mean it. Sing it as a commitment this morning. Sing it as your personal commitment to Jesus today to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Our world is watching.